welcome everyone uh, to session two of John Beverly's masterclass on the politics of theory. Um, uh, some of you were here yesterday, but I don't think all of you. For those of you who were here, I hope you are as looking forward as I am to uh, to continue to hear John uh, in in this journey uh, through key concepts of what has been critical inquiry in the last 50 years or more, thinking about their the politics, but also the political movements that created them, the context where they were, um, where they emerged. Uh, I have a couple of announcements before we start with the session today that will focus on cultural studies and subaltern studies. Um, one is to remind people of uh, the public talk tomorrow by John at 6 p.m. in this building, uh, room B04 in the basement, B04 basement, um, on a new Orientalism. I have, if anybody is interested, I have a few posters to give away. Um, uh, a new the the title as probably you already know a new Orientalism the question of literature as such and Islamic fundamentalism at six uh, with a reception to follow uh, a wine reception to follow I'll leave them here while it talks last so. <laughs> um, the other announcement is uh, uh, a bit more controversial. We are changing the starting time and the finishing time of session three of this master class. Um, this is, I understand this uh, might mean that some of you will not be able to attend, and I can only apologize uh, if that is the case. Uh, we've decided to do that because there's a kind of unfortunate and, and uh, clash between uh, the talk, uh, I mean the master class at the time that we have scheduled it and the, uh, the address, uh, the, um, the talk uh, by Dilma Rousseff, ex-president of Brazil, um, in the context of a different conference, in fact co-organized by one of our colleagues in, in, in C-Labs. This talk was going to happen tomorrow, but then it has been changed to Monday to completely coincide with uh, with the master class, with this session of the master class, and we thought that um, some of you might also be interested in having an opportunity to attend that as long as um, along with this one. So if that is the case, uh, you get two for the price of one. We've been guaranteed um, uh, entrance in a in. A, um, in that event, which is uh, which promises to be uh, sold out, um, probably, it's quite uh, it's quite extraordinary, really, to have someone like that addressing the Berbeck community. So uh, we thought it was worthwhile. I apologize again if that means that some of you cannot attend John's last session. Also, I should mention that, as you can see, we are video recording everything and and so all the talks will be put up in our website so for those of you who cannot come you will have a chance to listen to John still so you you might mention what the new time is for yeah I was going to ask when and where the new time is from 11 to 1 
from 11 to 1, which will give um, us... And the Rusev uh, is at 2, right? The, the talk by Dilma is at 2. It was going to be at the same time that we started. I will send, uh, I imagine that you've booked this session. I will send an email with all of the information and the details late today or early tomorrow um, so that uh, you have it in writing. Um, John has also offered after the session on Monday to take questions or to talk to, um, to you and have lunch in the context of lunch uh, before uh, some of us uh, go to, to, the, to the talk by Russell. Okay? Yeah, for those of you who can't come to the morning session, I'll just hang around at 1. Presumably, 1 is, might be okay for some of you who can't come at 11. Is that when it starts? Yes. And then we and 1 to 2. So. Yes. Okay. Okay. Over to you. Okay. Thank you. Well, the Dilma Rousseff uh, came up, uh, obviously, at the last minute, but I thought it was important because uh, yesterday, uh, uh, and in general, in setting up this uh, set of talks, I said that they were, the, the, the theoretical elaboration of some of the issues in the talks was connected, in my case, to... Uh, the decline in the fortunes of the so-called Marea Rosada or Pink Tide governments in Latin America. Uh, for a number of reasons, I considered uh, the Pink Tide a kind of political expression of the sort of work that I thought had been going on in cultural studies, uh, studies, right? queer studies, cultural studies, post-colonial studies, subaltern studies. It's always difficult to find the line of juncture between what people do in the academy and what people do in politics, but certainly there are certain very direct lines of junctures between uh, elements of the uh, political uh, project of the Pink Tide and uh, what I've been calling here the politics of theory. Uh, for, for those of you who don't know it, and for those of you who know it, this will be obvious. Uh, the movement that's called the MAS, the Movimiento Socialismo in Bolivia, which is still in power, one of the big time governments that hasn't been kicked out of power, uh, comes out of an academic work group in Bolivia that flourished in the 80s and 90s. Uh, very similar to the South Asian Subaltern Studies Group, and in somewhat of a dialogue with the South Asian Subaltern Studies Group uh, called Comuna, Commune, uh, which brought together a series of mainly academic intellectuals uh, <coughs> who were interested in the question of subalternity and the question of how to engage politically the indigenous population of Bolivia. And the most prominent, probably, of those intellectuals, uh, at that time a follower of uh, Negri, I'm going to talk about Negri on, at the session uh, on Monday, uh, but now changed his ways in some ways, uh, uh, is uh, uh, Garcia Linera, right? uh, the, the current vice president of uh, Bolivia. So that's a place where 
certain kinds of concepts that get elaborated in post-colonial theory, subaltern studies. The Bolivians published a translation of uh, the work of the South Asian subaltern studies group. and uh, so they were aware of that, and that uh, that uh, connection uh, between subaltern studies and uh, uh, the polit- the new types of political elaboration in Latin America that uh, a movement like the Bolivian <coughs> MAS uh, are clear. Also clear is that almost every one of these governments, in some right-wing governments, even that kind of come into the power in the last 20 years, immediately moved to change the constitution of the nations to define the nation as a multinational state, right? A concept that goes back to uh, Austrian Marxism, right? Uh, Otto Bauer and the Austrian Marxism of the 1920s. When Bauer started trying to think about the Austro-Hungarian Empire as a state, one state, but with a lot of different nations within it, right? Uh, that idea of a multinational state. Otto Bauer's book, I mentioned this because it's almost forgotten that it was, it was called Marxism and the Question of Nationalities, and it was a kind of response to the theory that Lenin and Stalin and, the Bolshe- and Trotsky and the Bolsheviks developed about the nation state. Uh, Bauer is trying to think of a nation, a national liberation is something like a federation of states, right? Whereas uh, Lenin and, uh, and Stalin were trying to think of national liberation as the construction of a single state around a dominant language, ethnic identity, market, so forth and so on, right? That's why the Soviet Union becomes a sort of collection of individual uh, national states. But Latin Americans start in a post-colonial kind of way trying to think of them as multinational states, right? That's an important, uh, an important uh, concept. Uh, clear, clearly, with a post-colonial uh, warrant, right? Because indigenous uh, territorialities are, can have forms of self-government and history and tradition and so forth and so on. Never part of multinational. So the fact that uh, Rousseff was here was coming here, uh, seemed to me not incidental to uh, uh, the issues we were going to take up in the seminar. At the end of the last class, there was an interesting discussion on violence, thanks to your question, and I said maybe the topic of violence emerges uh, and affect more prominently onto the stage of our thinking now uh, because of uh, the loss of a historical uh, horizon. Uh, in, in general, I would say we deal in the last quarter century with the loss of the historical horizon of socialism. Even if you weren't a socialist, you lived in a world, right, where there, kind of, there was a horizon of the possibility of a socialist uh, society. That, but then the Latin American New Left, the Pink Tide, sort of revived the possibility. Oh, well, maybe there's a new way to go at it. Uh, and these governments hold the promise. They all consider themselves socialist or, in one way or another. And the largest and most important of them uh, was clearly the, uh, the Workers' Party government uh, in, in Brazil. 
So the collapse of that project uh, means also the collapse of uh, a historical horizon. Maybe not forever, but certainly for the, for the short term. Probably for what's left of me of my life, you know, but maybe some of you who are younger here, there'll be another round. Uh, I think we have Trump at least for four years, and if I survive that, who knows. And what's happening in Latin America is very unclear at the moment. But what is clear is that the left tide is in, in recession. So the possibility of interacting with uh, Rousseff and seeing what her take on this uh, collapse uh, of the pink tide is uh, in Latin America would it's in a way part of the course. So that, with apologies to, for those who that on schedules I'm screwing up, that, that was the, the logic of it. Um, okay, so today I had promised, I do have here, for those of you who don't have it, uh, a copy of the uh, syllabus of the course. Does everybody have a copy of the syllabus? Does anybody want Okay, I only have one, so you can take, pick, I hope you have phones or stuff like that and take. And today was a day when I was going to talk about uh, uh, subaltern studies, uh, Latin American subaltern, subaltern studies in general, but in but also my particular uh, field, which is Latin American subaltern studies and cultural studies, uh, both projects that I was pretty heavily involved in. Yeah, you okay there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, let me just uh, uh, review uh, what we did uh, in the first class, uh, uh, which was on structuralism and postcolonialism. Uh, uh, the key idea to recall of a politics of theory is not that uh, uh, we had new ways th of thinking about politics theoretically. That in a sense, a kind of new Machiavellianism had appeared in the uh, postmodernist Machiavellianism <coughs> in the last 30 or 40 years. But the theory itself, from the moment of structuralism forward, uh, came to be seen as a form of radical in intervention in life, doing theory, what Althusser called uh, political theoretical practice. Uh, uh, was considered a form of active intervention, uh, uh, both ideologically but also uh, socially and politically. Right? So that's a key dis the distinction between theory about politics uh, and a, a theory as an element of political uh, practice. And that involved, uh, I'm going to say, uh, seven um, propositions. Uh, first, the fundamental structuralist proposition, the Saussurian proposition, right, that the relationship between the signifier and the signified in language, but then in any kind of semiotic system, uh, is arbitrary, A, and B, when B, is arbitrary on both sides. That's to say, it's not only the signifier that's <coughs> arbitrary, uh, that, a, that a different set of phonemes in a different language can designate the same kind of thing. 
but to signify is also arbitrary. We have all these different words that signify horse, but you could imagine a, a form of consciousness and a language uh, that pertains to that form of consciousness where the distinction between horse and field is not easily expressed. Uh, like the, the famous distinction that the Inuits have 65 different words for what we call snow, right? But they mean 65 completely different things for what we all want snow, not snow. Uh, so that's a key, that was the key, this, this, it seems to me the key radical insight in structuralism was that notion of the arbitrary character of the signify too. Nevertheless, being arbitrary, proposition number two, uh, the subject, you, in other words, uh, the human subject, the subject of history, the subject of knowledge, is an effect of the signifier. Right? Uh, that was the proposition of Lacan's famous essay on the uh, mirror stage, and I think a, a fundamental, and Althusser's essay on ideology. You are constituted as a subject by uh, an interpolation which comes to you from the outside and imposes on you in either a happy way or an unhappy way. Uh, the, the child standing in front of the mirror is happy, uh, but altos are used as a much more gloomy uh, example, which is the policeman hailing you. Hey, you! And then you... You don't even see him, he's in back of you, right? Hey, you there. Uh, you are hailed, interpolated, was the word uh, structuralists used, right? Uh, as a subject. Or God summons you. John, come forth and do my bidding. In your very name, you're summoned by God, right? And Althusser makes the, the ironic remark in his uh, very gloomy biography, gloomy because it was written after he murdered his wife, strangled his wife to death. Althusser was a manic, depressive guy. <laughs> his wife was probably saying, oh, Althusser, you're too theoretical. And, Practically, <laughs> uh, and then he writes this biography to try to come to terms with that, uh, uh, which is an interesting but very gloomy work. And one of the things he says in that very gloomy work, which really caught my attention, and because it sort of condensed this idea of the subject as an effect of the signifier, he says he was given the wrong name. He wanted to have the name of an uncle who had been uh, a hero. Uh, of World War One, and who he felt his mother really loved, but who had been killed in the war. Uh, and so, Jock, uh, uh, not incidental here that uh, Althusser's psychoanalyst was for some time Jacques Lacan, right? But Jacques is the name he felt he should have gotten. Uh, uh, but instead they called him, I guess after his father, I think, Louis, Louis, Louis. And so he felt that was what his whole life was fucked up by that uh, thing, uh, that misnaming. Uh, 
And uh, so then he makes the, the statement, we are, when we are given a name, even when we're still in the womb, we are subjects before we are biological entities. We're sub you're, you're already, when you have a name, a subject, an effect of the signifier, even though you might just be, you know, a couple of hundred uh, cells or something like that. Uh, that that seemed to me a striking uh, way of thinking about it. Second, that's the effect of the subject is the effect of the signifier. Third, this means, uh, and that was a great debate in uh, in the 80s, 70s, and 80s uh, in Marxism, uh, that the traditional Marxist distinction between base and superstructure is uh, suspended in some ways, or problematized in some kinds of ways, uh, because the level of the signifying system or the ideological can be, uh, can sustain uh, an economic mode of production. It's not only a sort of secondary effect of a, of a uh, given mode of production, but it can itself be uh, uh, the sustaining uh, force uh, in a motive. Easier to see that with with feudalism than with capitalism, but it's clear that the relationship between lord and peasant in, uh, in a feudal system is not a simply an economic relationship. Because the, the lord is defined as lord by a set of cultural codes, including religion, that puts him in that. And they, gives him that position and gives him the power to extort uh, wealth from the peasants. And the peasants similarly are in a position that they should naturally want to provide uh, feudal rent uh, to, their, to their lords. Right? Cultural separation. Lords are tall, peasants are small, Don Quixote, Sancho Panza, uh, uh, blonde, dark, thin, fat, riding on horseback, walking on foot. Uh, it's a cultural culture. Uh, four, uh, the relationship of the signifier and the signified, uh, though in some sense it's absolute in the order of what Lacan would call uh, the symbolic in other words, we make fun of uh, the meaning of words if we misuse them only at our peril, right? Uh, if you call something orange that's red too many times, you might get from your parents a, a slap on the head. Come on, you know. Uh, but nevertheless, it's a very precarious because it's just sort of the meeting of two different spheres of uh, the sphere of the real, which is in which everything is unnameable, unnamed and unnameable, and the sphere of uh, the distinctions that constitute linguistic uh, uh, concepts, uh, the, the structure, the semiotic web which, as you know, we spent a bit of time on that last time, is the structure of negation, right? What is orange? Orange is for sure. It's not orange, not red. What is red? Red is not brown, what is, et cetera, right? 
one negative. There's nothing positive that emerges. It says, hey, I'm red. You've got to call me red. Now, what is red is itself the, the effect of a, of a structure of negations, which cut, that was the phrase we were talking about, uh, make a coupule, a cut in the, in the, uh, the real. Okay, fifth, uh, it's a, but it's a precarious relationship, right? It's easy to slip out of, uh, uh, for example, in gender terms, this has been a concern of Butler's, right, in dealing with questions of performativity in gender. It's, uh, it's not impossible, Freud had posited a sort of polymorphous promiscuity for your identity as a, quote, a man or a woman, or or even transgendered, right, to slip. Hey, I'm transgendered, I'm neither man nor woman. Yeah, but you're still an effect of the signifier. You haven't escaped the signifier by saying you're transgendered. It's just your signifier is now that of the transgendered uh, person. You don't escape the effect of the signifier either, as French feminism tried to do by uh, saying we're going to have a woman's writing, which instead of being phallic and dependent on a sort of the penetrating or cutting character of the pen, uh, is now going to emanate from the womb, from the vagina, in some sense or another. That was a, a big theme in French feminism, Miriam and people like that. Uh, but still, it seems you're still under the effect of the signifier, right? It's just that you've kind of shifted the signifier around from a, a phallic signifier to a, a vaginal signifier. But if what's phallic about the, the signifier, the relationship between the signifier and the signifier, what's violent and patriarchal, is not the possession of the penis itself, but the, the fact of the imposition of identity through the signifier, then uh, w women's writing is just as phallic as men's writing. Right? It's just elevating another the, Instead of the wolf as the head of your clan, you have the, I don't know, some other, the bear. <coughs> uh, but you still have a totem, right? Um, okay, so number six, this is now we move into the post colonial. Uh, uh, number five, sorry. Um, theory itself, and, and what I meant by theory was structuralism and its consequences, uh, it should be seen uh, as an effect of post-colonial struggle in the metropolitan centers. that is post-colonial struggle, decolonial struggle, from World War II onwards creates sort of the conditions of thought and possibility in which theory can arise and generalize itself. Even though it's basically a Western and European phenomenon, it's only possible as a consequence of the struggle of colonial subjects to get rid of uh, European and, and U.S. domination. It seems to me a very important. That that theme is the theme basically of Robert Young's work. And Robert and I put as one of the readings uh, Robert Young's essay on Derrida in Algeria, where he sort of brings these things together. Uh, 
quite firmly, but that's an essay from a larger collection of Robert Young's works called Postcolonialism, a History. Big, big book, which you want to follow this theme. Uh, that theory is a consequence of postcolonialism uh, or, or anti-colonial struggle. Uh, that's a good place to do. Uh, where are we? Six. Uh, uh, as a consequence, uh, uh, and now we move into a, the specifically Fanonian dimension of uh, uh, theorizing uh, anti-colonial struggle, which, as you remember, is founded on the idea of the necessary character of anti-colonial violence. Right? Uh, anti-colonial violence is then has the effect for Fanon uh, of uh, uh, destabilizing uh, uh, the semiotic system, the structural system, uh, in which the identities of uh, subaltern and dominant are constructed. I think you could make a similar argument for for feminist violence or, or women's violence or women's anger, maybe, uh, as destabilizing the space of uh, uh, construction of identity uh, of male and female as involving, in some sense, a dominant subaltern. So, for Fanon, violence is not only strategic or tactical in military senses, oh, we can't do this peacefully, so we're going to have to do it violently. It itself is necessary in order to clear the space for a new kind of subjectivity, and since we're talking about a new kind of subjectivity, that means the relationship between signifier and signified has to be destabilized and reorganized in some, uh, in some way. Seven, and then we approach today. Uh, the practice of theory, uh, uh, theoretical practice, uh, uh, in academic work uh, mainly, uh, but also in literate forms of imaginative literature, movies, uh, documentary, uh, wherever. Uh, uh, means that in that work, uh, uh, which happens separately from, or, well, not, not, I won't say always separately, but certainly some removed from the practice of theory as such, nevertheless the practice of theory means uh, uh, the installation within uh, academic work and professionalism disciplines uh, uh, of decolonial violence. Hmm? The practice of theory in the economy is a form of decolonial violence. Uh, so violence is not just something out there, right, that we write about or think about, uh, but is involved in our own work. Uh, it also involves questions of Intellect, violence in intellectual uh, terms. And finally, uh, what are 
some of these forms of uh, the practice of theory that involve some kind of violence, not epistemological violence, but maybe it goes a little bit beyond just the question of epistemological violence, cultural studies and uh, subaltered studies. So, so let me start with, uh, so that's seven, right? Seven or eight propositions. Uh, let me start with a question of uh, cultural studies. So you, you all know uh, that cultural studies has basically an English warrant that goes back to the work of the so-called Birmingham School of, I believe, the late 70s, uh, uh, where something called the Birmingham Center for Cultural Studies uh, is created. Right? And probably the key book of that movement is the book that I mentioned last time called Learning to Labor, uh, which was a study of the different cultural formations, music, slang, dress, so forth and so on, by which at the time England was still a relatively traditional capitalist country, right, with, with people becoming industrial working class, how young men and women were socialized, it was a kind of sociology of formation, into becoming working class uh, subjects, uh, factory workers, uh, mill workers, uh, miners. Uh. Uh, but uh, what was striking about uh, Learning for Labor, another work of the Birmingham School, probably the Birmingham School is best known to you all and best represented by uh, a later variant of Birmingham, which is uh, particularly con connects up with the post-colonial, uh, which is uh, uh, Stuart Hall, right? Stuart Hall's work, uh, work on race and uh, but a certain variant also in British uh, feminism. And, uh, okay, uh, but I will also mention as an ingredient in cultural studies the work of the uh, British, uh, the Communist Party, the British Communist Party's histor so-called historians group, uh, which included, uh, uh, among others, Christopher Hill, and for a while, anyway, um, uh, the guy who wrote the English, the work, making the English e. work, E.P. Thompson. E. Thompson. Mm -hmm. So if you pick up uh, E.P. Thompson's uh, making of the English working class, E.P. Thompson would hate all this stuff about structuralism and stuff like that, and dedicated a good part of his career to, especially to insulting uh, French uh, intellectuals. Uh, <laughs> uh, to no effect, as far as I can tell. E.P. Thompson destroys Althusser several times over in a famous polemic against structuralism. But each time Althusser crashes to the ground under Thompson's fierce polemic, uh, it's like that myth of the guy that Hercules wrestles with, so that every time Hercules wrestles the guy to the ground, the guy gets new power from having touched the ground and pops up again. So. But there is a, a splendid essay in, uh, in uh, Making of the English Working Class. I would consider this one of the models uh, of cultural studies. Uh, uh, even though, as I just suggested, I have my differences with uh, uh, Thompson. 
on uh, the role of Methodism in the construction of uh, working class, British working class uh, consciousness. The ideas of Methodism, the organizations of Methodism, the practice of Methodism, and how all this kind of fits in with a certain dimension of uh, the formation, as the book says. So the formation of the British working class isn't just, you know, new types of jobs, new technologies, but also Methodism. Uh, so that's where the word comes from, cultural studies, right, and, and the initial idea uh, from Birmingham. Uh, probably already that idea is present in different kinds of work, especially in sociology of culture and in certain aspects of cultural anthropology, certainly in the work of the Frankfurt School on mass culture. Uh, there's a slight shift, though, from, from Frankfurt to Birmingham and kind of what we meant by cultural studies. As Frankfurt School people say they're going to study mass culture. They consider mass culture a form of uh, uh, worthy of uh, uh, study. Uh, but with the exception of uh, Walter Benjamin, an issue that may come up a little bit later, uh, the Frankfurt School wants to study uh, mass culture as uh, false consciousness, right? They take over the Marxist problematic of false consciousness and want to see, cap especially capitalist mass culture, as uh, a form of mass consciousness, which sort of brainwashes the working classes, right? Uh, and uh, leads them into a, a sheep-like um, uh, acceptance of uh, that and Fordism uh, uh, of their uh, position in uh, society, right? Without this consumer consumerism and that uh, the increased uh, wealth of the work, relative wealth of the working class uh, that Fordism makes possible. Fordism, right, is the idea that the worker should be able to buy the product that he or she makes, right? And so Ford paid his workers sufficiently high salary so they could buy. Uh, Ford cars, cheap on Ford cars, but, and that's the idea. There's a capitalism that where workers will have the power of consumption. Uh, that finishes off the working class as an agent of um, contestation in the advanced capitalist world. That's the basic thesis of the Frankfurt School. Right? I confronted it in the form of uh, one of my teachers when I was in graduate school in, uh, at the University of California, San Diego, who was Herbert Marcuse, the famous writer of Eros and Civilization and other books. But Marcuse's basic idea was that consumerism and, uh, had pretty much eaten up the possibility of radical resistance from um, the working class. By the way, that's an idea that Fanon, from a very different direction, shares. Because one thing we didn't talk about when we were dealing with the wretched of the earth <coughs> yesterday was that Fanon obliterates the working class as the agent of post-colonial struggle. Right? In the old Leninist formula, he said, yes, there's going to be post-colonial struggle. It's going to be led by the working class. But, but of course, other classes are going to uh, jump on the bandwagon too, so the working class will kind of be the 
vanguard of the national uh, liberation movement. Fanon says, no, the working class uh, is itself deeply colonized, more the working class in the colonial uh, area, uh, more deeply colonized in other sectors of the population. And so the sectors of the population that we should count on for genuine revolutionary militancy and or, or who would not be uh, have problems with this um, extraordinary exercise of violence that uh, Fanon uh, advocates uh, are the peasantry, a class that most Marxists dismiss, right? Uh, but it's going to reappear. The pe peasants don't buy into uh, colonial uh, uh, Prussia. Fanon says. So that while they may be reactionary in many other respects uh, in terms of mobilizing in a military kind of way against uh, uh, colonialism, they have no problems with that. Uh, and they are a lumpen proletariat of the great colonial cities. That is, people who are not employed as factory workers or union in unionized nurses, unionized kinds of jobs. In the informal workforce, the people who live in the great slums, you know, and have to kind of uh, hustle to put together uh, a living. They're permanently unemployed uh, or underemployed. That's where, for Fidel, the, the new revolutionary subject of the anti-colonial struggle uh, will appear. Okay, so cultural studies, and coming back to that, uh, displaces, uh, at least in, in its earliest iterations, and beginning with Birmingham, beginning with uh, uh, Stuart Hall, beginning with uh, Michel de Certeau, the French uh, theorist of cultural uh, practices, uh, beginning with uh, Nestor Garcia Conclini in Latin America, talking about uh, uh, the new forms of mass culture that people participate in big Latin American cities like Mexico City. Um, uh, beginning uh, cultural studies people in the United States who had to confront the paradox, it was a paradox of my own generation, <laughs> that while our cultural uh, ideal as uh, middle-class intellectuals uh, was uh, modernism. Uh, and modernism, as you remember, in, in music expressed itself in the form of 12-tone music, right? Late Weber and, and then Schoenberg, variations of that afterwards. Uh, or maybe in a more retrograde form in stuff like, like Stravinsky. That was the great debate in music, right? Stravinsky or Schoenberg. Adorno has a famous book about that called The Philosophy of Modern Music, in which Adorno is seen as progressive and Stravinsky is seen as reactionary. But that was, that was the limits of the debate. So we're reading about Adorno and modern music, but at the same time we're listening to rock and roll, right? Or the music of our generation. And music that we participate in is uh, that we buy and talk about and stuff like that uh, is rock and roll. Uh, uh, 
at its highest points, the Beatles, you know, but that's high, you know, that's sort of classy rock and roll. We listen to a lot of junky rock and roll, too. Uh, same problem with, with movies and TV. Uh, certainly my generation has to be counted as the first generation in human history. I was born in 1943, right? So, uh, that was brought up with television, and not just with, uh, not just with television, but also in a certain sense by television, right? Because we watched enormous, still do, I still do watch enormous quantities of television every day, hours, you know. Uh, uh, and so television was, in a Frankfurt school, kind of way, a space of degradation and schlock and advertising and commercialism, and, uh, but also a space that we felt somewhat bonded to. Right? Uh, so if it's true that 60s radicalism, that there is something that emerges in the 60s that in advanced capitalist countries like the United States or Great Britain. Uh, it doesn't emerge, I think this was a key principle of early, early cultural studies, in spite of schlocky mass culture. Uh, it emerges in some way or another from some things that are present in mass culture. Mass culture then becomes this, the idea is that mass culture and the consumption of mass culture, reception theory was very uh, crucial here. Uh, uh, a space of cultural agency, radical cultural agency. Right? Whereas literature, Literature, the traditional humanities, classical music, even classical music in its most avant-garde forms, uh, comes to be seen more and more as a space of an elitism which is coincident with the reproduction of the superstructure of a basically capitalist society. So e even though it's purely commercial, mass culture, to be distinguished, and this was often an, an issue in the 60s, from folk culture. Right? Mass culture is the, the, the schlocky culture that uh, capitalist cultural industries produce. So it's not some guy with a banjo, you know, singing somewhere in Alabama or something like that. Uh, it's the, the son or sons of, and daughters of that guy who have immigrated to Chicago and are using electric guitars and are playing uh, urban blues or soul music. That's mass culture, right? So there was a, there's a famous moment in American cultural history, uh, uh, which is when Bob Dylan, who had been famous as a folk artist, right, folk, kind of recycling American <coughs> folk music, uh, uh, decides he's going to play with electric instruments uh, and with a more rocky kind of sound and uh, performs at a concert uh, with this ensemble, uh, immediately creating an enormous debate. Uh, 
in American culture. Where paradoxically some of the people who were most uh, antagonistic uh, to uh, uh, Dylan's shift from folk to rock uh, uh, are the cultural theoreticians of the American Communist Party. Why would the cultural theoreticians of the American Communist Party have problems with well, because folk music was the music of the people, right, yet uncontaminated by capitalism or prior to capitalism in some kind of way or another. And, uh, whereas rock was commercial drudge or dread, uh, dread, 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 drinks. So cultural studies would be equivalent uh, in the field of the academy to Dylan's shifting from the folk musician with a harmonica and, uh, and a guitar to having a band, right? Uh, six instruments, uh, you know, piano, drums, and, and singing a different kind of music too, right? And, and folk, old folk ballads or modern versions of old, uh, old folk ballads. So the presumption in cultural studies, I think, I think it would be fair to say, and that's a violence, that there is an element of violence there, right? That it freaked out a lot of people that Dylan shifted from uh, pop, from folk to pop, and it freaked out a lot of people, and a lot of people are still coming to terms with it, uh, Including myself, uh, when when uh, uh, African American music shifted to uh, r rap and hip hop, right? Big moment, very political. Public Defender was one of the first highly politicized, uh, and a whole generation of people that had been brought up on black music didn't get it anymore, right? Didn't couldn't get into hip hop. Uh, uh, but I think there's implicit here a notion that in mass culture, very different than the Frankfurt notion, uh, that uh, pop is popular, uh, and popular means connected in some kind of a way with the people, popular, in Gramsci's words, of the people, consumed by the people. Uh, and therefore the place where what was desired by Gramsci, uh, uh, that is the creation of a national popular identity, uh, uh, was happening, re really happening. Now, now to go back there we have to recall an argument that both Gramsci makes about Italy but that also Latin American uh, literary historians were making about Latin America. Gramsci, you, you remember, the key problem that Gramsci faces in the prison notebooks is the problem of Italy's failure to come into its own as a modern nation state. Right? And this is because Italy goes through in the 1870-something Gramsci calls a passive revolution. A passive revolution is a revolution where the government changes, you have a parliament now instead of a monarchy and so forth and so on. But really the basic structural forms of the society 
are, are not transformed. And in the case of Italy, that meant there was no fundamental land reform, right? It changes into a parliamentary democracy, but there's no land. Whereas the French Revolution is not a passive revolution. If anything, the French Revolution is quite an active revolution because basically the French Revolution kills off the landowning class, right? Or chases them out of France, right? Uh, to England, uh, other places, right? Uh, so the, in that kind of way, France could become a modern nation, right? Because they had a real revolution. But Italy does hasn't become a modern nation. And one of the failures of Italy to come into its own as a nation it goes back to a problem that Italy has since the Renaissance, which is that the culture of the people who consider themselves writers and intellectuals, the culture of the latter classes, uh, is distinct uh, from the culture of ordinary people. It's distinct not only by the level, the degree of literary elaboration, but it's distinct linguistically. Uh, Italian uh, is the creation of a lettered elite in Italy, but actual Italians in Naples, Sicily, wherever, you know, uh, speak not Italian, but some kind of dialect of Italian, right? Uh, which is not a literary language, or only in very precarious ways becomes a, a literary language. So unlike, say, what happens in France with um, the great popular novelist of the 19th century, uh, uh, or in England with Dickens, or in Spain with Galdós, or there isn't in Italy uh, a, a national popular novel, a, a novel that sort of brings the, expresses the emerging uh, nation and different classes and different, uh, 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 so literary culture cannot be, Gramsci says, or so far has not become a national popular uh, culture, right? Maybe it will, maybe he hopes it will, but uh, it isn't. So you can't look to literature for uh, transformation. The Latin American argument is similar and in, in some ways related to Gramsci. Gramsci sort of starts coming into Latin America in the 60s and, well, mid-70s, pretty much. Uh, there's something called a turn to Gramsci in Latin American social sciences, uh, where all of a sudden all these questions of partial modernization and literature and ethics and values and religion suddenly start to become very prominent. Whereas before Latin American social thinkers tended to think in terms of economic development. Economic development will happen and the cultural stuff will come afterwards, kind of in its in its wake. Uh, uh, but now the question Latin Americans were trying to grapple with was the question of a, an uneven or modernity, right? Latin American, extremely modern in some kinds of ways, right? Uh, but in other kinds of ways. Uh, feudal elements still persisted in Latin America. A lot of unevenness. You know. uh, partly the problem of passive revolution that Gramsci had already diagnosed. Latin Americans have revolutions in the early 19th century, but they don't really produce even a transformation of the 
the deeper layers of the colonial society because the protagonists of the anti-colonial movements are basically white property-owning Creoles, right? and not the Indian or black masses of Latin, or mestizo masses of Latin American peasants, field workers, artisans, so forth and so on. A passive revolution, important concept it seems to me. Um, uh, so, uh, in particular, the Latin American literature, which was seen by the left uh, in the wake of the Cuban Revolution, and the kind of affinity between a lot of Latin American writers like Garcia Marquez and the Cuban Revolution as the place where a sort of new kind of uh, post-colonial uh, 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 cultural sensibility was going to be created and was going to express itself. The basic idea was that literature was going to be a space of what uh, one critic called transculturation, right? Uh, Latin America has many different cultural strands, indigenous, African, European, different parts of Europe. Uh, uh, these would come together sort of like in, in the form of a stew. There's a kind of stew in Cuba called a ajiaco, uh, which is a combination of African root vegetables that the slaves brought with them and uh, other types of food that's more associated with Europe. Uh, and so the, Cuban, the great Cuban anthropologist uh, Fernando Ortiz uh, uses the ajiaco as a model of transculturation. He says, transculturation is superior and he's specifically responding to, uh, in 1940, to fascism and to an idea of cultural acculturation, right? Uh, where the colonial encounter is supposed to force the colonial subject to become a culture, to accept this dominant, the culture of the... He says, well, in Cuba, we have transculturation which means these cultures conflict with each other, but they also enter into some kind of combination or synthesis. Uh, and, and probably the form of cultural history that's most affected by the transculturation argument is uh, the history of jazz. The history of jazz is essentially, if you know anything about the history of jazz, a, a kind of transculturation um, argument. And then jazz itself figures ideologically as a symbol, uh, a signifier of uh, uh, successful transculturation in a democratic society like the United States. In that kind of way, jazz gets used as a, as a symbol during the Cold War, right? Jazz is what a successful democratic society, multicultural democratic society, whereas Russians produce whatever they produce. Uh, good symphonic music. Uh, okay, I'm wondering. <coughs> Pop, popular populist. Mass culture is populist. Uh, or it leads to, there's a zone in which mass culture passes over into the possibility, we were talking about it last time, the political populism. Uh, mass culture vindicates the working class and the popular classes, broader than the working class, 
as an active thinking uh, uh, subject with agency, uh, popular culture uh, destabilizes uh, the uh, what's the phrase that anthropologists use? Uh, when there's the assumption that one culture is existing in a historical time space totally different than the one Liminal? you live in. Liminal. Coevo. Coevo? Liminal. Yeah, Liminal. That's right. Coevo, that's right. Right. A lot of thinking about culture and uh, uh, is is predicated the anthrop so modern anthropologists have told us predicated on a the denial of coevalness, right? There's the famous book by Fabian uh, called Time and the Other, or some, something like that, Time and the Other, where he shows how anthropology sort of builds into itself a denial of coevalence. What's a denial of coevalence? Well, the denial of coevalence is that we, here in London, uh, are living in a space-time which is completely different than, first of all, the space-time that people in the third world are living in, or in the agricultural regions of the third world, or tribal, uh, that they're living in a different... But that's a denial of coevalence. I mean, clearly they're not, they're not living in a different time than we are, right? Uh, we're all <coughs> living at the same time, right? Uh, and we're all trying to make do with uh, things uh, in the best way we can with the tools that we have at the, at the same time. So they say some people are more on the scale, more on this side, and some people are more on that side. Uh, well, it's it's a semiotic distinction, right? Because we talk about primitive societies uh, uh, or popular culture in a disrespective kind of way, as if popular culture weren't good enough in some kind of way or another to constitute a way of thinking or being in the world, uh, an, an effective way of thinking or being in the world. Quite the opposite of popular culture is a kind of poison, right? Uh, 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 pharmacos, right? That, uh, uh, drug poison. Uh, uh, so that cultural studies, I think, and post-colonial subaltern studies uh, work on the principle of attacking the denial of coevalness. Right? That's a key. Uh, which is in part a denial of a certain notion of history and historicity, right? That some cultures are, uh, goes back to Hegel and Kant, you know, some cultures are more awakened, more illuminated, uh, uh, advanced uh, uh, than others, uh, and in particular Western cultures are more illuminated and advanced than non-Western cultures, and therefore the problem of history becomes how to translate to <coughs> non-Western cultures, the principle of illumination or enlightenment that's in, in Western culture. Okay, that's the basic premise of cultural studies, and that's why I would think it's fair to say that, as Stuart Hall put it, there is a, I'm quoting Stuart Hall here, there is a political aspect to cultural studies. Hall talks often about the political aspect. 
cultural studies as a way to try to intervene in the distinctions of class, race, gender in the modern world in a way that favors the popular, the popular classes, the popular subject, uh, <coughs> uh, against not only right-wing or conservative views of things, but also against that part of the left which insists that the popular classes can only be brought to full consciousness by uh, some kind of knowledge operation of education uh, uh, by a more educated uh, subject. So this is where the, the idea of the subaltern emerges then, right? in Gramsci. Gramsci uses the word subaltern in the prison notebooks to designate. Uh, he's in prison, to, and all of his writings are subject to scrutiny by the prison censors. So one theory is that instead of saying that workers and peasants, right, as the communist banner is, uh, hammer and sickle, right, workers, workers and peasants, uh, and therefore fearing getting struck down by the censor. Gramsci uses as a euphemism, uh, tactical euphemism, the subaltern classes, right? But meaning workers and, and peasants. Uh, that may be, there may be something to that, but I think that necessity maybe, or that caution that Gramsci exercises uh, in talking about the subaltern <coughs> classes, leads also to a different conception of class in which class is not only an economic relationship of production, uh, but also a cultural, a sense of cultural inferiority. And this functions in particular in relationship to the so-called southern question in Italian history, the fact that the north in Italy is developed and more like Europe, the rest of Europe, uh, industry, uh, Milan, uh, science, technology, uh, whereas the South is more agrarian, more dominated by the Catholic Church, more peasant. So the traditional idea of Italian socialism uh, had been for the northern, the working class in the north, a large part of which was made up by immigrants from the South, but now they've become factory workers <coughs> and stuff like that, uh, to be the leader of uh, uh, the transformation of Italy, but basically with the ideals of uh, the North. So the South remains subalternized. Right? The South are peasants, they're stupid, they're tied to private property, uh, all those prejudices against peasants in uh, Marxism and socialism that we talked about in, in the last. Gramsci feels, maybe shares some of those prejudices, but nevertheless feels that without the participation of the peasant <coughs> population or the agrarian population of the South, Italians, the, the project of communism in Italy doesn't have a chance. It can't be just the project of a, a northern uh, working class uh, whose political project depends on a denial of coevality. The southerners don't get it. You know, they're hopeless. So, in part, Gramsci is trying to summon up uh, in, 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 in the idea of a subaltern identity in Russian class relationships, this notion of a large part of the Italian population uh, 
peasant, but also some sectors of the working class, too, being considered in some way or another as inferior or prehistorical. Right? That's the key uh, idea there. Uh, how to bring them into that uh, Italian history, uh, the making of a new state, the making of a new society. Uh, the question which I think Gramsci runs afoul on, and maybe is still a question for political articulation today, is if people who are considered subaltern or inferior in some kind of way in societies come into a position of domination, hegemony, And they do so by becoming educated in the disciplines of modern post-enlightenment society, mathematics, science, law, <coughs> uh, everything the university, university culture represents. Then, and this is I think a problem of Soviet Marxism in particular, right? Then in a sense, even though you've come to power, let's say a peasant rebellion comes to power, right? But now it's everybody's getting math, literacy, so forth and so on. Uh, ha, ha, isn't in a sense the old dominant class still in power, right? Because the cultural forms that the new class has to exercise, learn and exercise in order to run the state are the cultural forms created by the previous uh, dominant class. So a kind of impasse forms here that Gramsci was not able to solve. Uh, uh, but it's at something like that impasse that uh, financiary violence uh, originates, right? We have to have some kind of originary force here to break this. <coughs> paradox, right, that uh, uh, the lower classes can come into power, but in a sense simply continue to be subject to uh, uh, the culture of the upper, upper classes. Okay, that's one thing. And, uh, the other thing, I think, is, uh, I'm going to have to summarize quickly here. We'll take a break in about 15 minutes, and then we can come back and explore some of these things more. I've gone on a little bit longer than I, th I thought I was going to go on in cultural studies. Uh, cultural studies, I think, is connected historically, <coughs> like theory, it, to a wave of political radicalization, which happens all around the world since the end of World War II, but which takes a particularly acute form in the 60s with the explosion of a series of uh, revolutions, the Algerian Revolution, the Vietnamese Revolution, uh, uh, the New Left in the United States, the Civil Rights Movement in the United States, the Women's Movement, uh, the Cultural Revolution in China, uh, big revolutionary period, capitalist societies are uh, successful but under a lot of pressure to expand, to give more uh, good stuff to the working class. In general, generally speaking, the universities in developed countries and semi-developed countries like Mexico or Argentina double in the, 19, in the decade of 1960s because all the states put 
tremendous amounts of money into creating uh, new universities in, in order to soak up the working class, right, and create a... Uh, and, and that's the strategic logic behind the idea of the student rebellion as a form of political uh, urgency in the 60s and, and 70s. Universities suddenly become very central sites of class struggle. Um, and cultural studies is a continuation of that. Cultural studies sees itself at a moment when the, the political force of uh, uh, radicalism, 60s student-style radicalism, has dissipated, say, by the mid-70s, uh, and a kind of era of conservative restoration. I use the word restoration precisely in the sense that it's used in relationship to the French Revolution, right? It is after the French Revolution, the reactionary powers of Europe and the church get together and say, we're going to impose a new order in which the changes that the French Revolution produced are going to be contained and pushed back to the extent that we can't, not completely, but pushed back, limited. So something like a restoration then happens in uh, Western history. Uh, in the 70s. Right? One of the great architects of that restoration is Henry Kissinger, the American Secretary of State, and one of the key deals that constitutes the restoration is the deal that Kissinger executes uh, with China to make the United States and China allies, which then becomes the basis for the big economic uh, boom that China has experienced since then. That's a cancellation of the radical force of uh, the Chinese Revolution. It's an anti-colonial revolution and of the Cultural Revolution in particular. For good or for bad, I'm not, uh, I'm not making a judgment here, but that's clearly what happened. China is taken off the table, right? The biggest country will no longer be supporting third world revolutions or transformations, then the collapse of the Soviet Union, etc. That's a restoration. That looks to me like a restoration. So what happens with theory, you could say, has some kind of coincidence with actual military and political practice in the 60s and 70s. Guerrilla movements in Latin America, for example. Althusser's student, right student, Regis Debray, goes to Latin America and becomes a friend of Che Guevara and writes a famous manifesto about guerrilla warfare called Revolution and the Revolution. So there's a connection between these worlds of theory and the worlds of revolutionary activism. But that clearly ends by the mid-70s, generally. Not everywhere, but generally. And so now theory is left on its own uh, without a, uh, an actual base of social uh, militancy and activism, or, or a very limited base of social militancy and activism. And so the idea becomes to find some, I think, compensatory radicalism in theory. And cultural studies is one of the places that I've just made that argument why that, why it came to seem that that was the case. Oh, well, popular culture, that's a place where people can, can make their lives, can make decisions about the world. Consumption is also a way of thinking. That was a famous slogan by uh, Garcia Canclin. El consumo también sirve para pensar. Uh, 
uh, reception theory, uh, etc. Uh, and that suggests a kind of agency, both epistemological and political agency, to the consumers of popular culture. You'll, you'll remember that, that phase of cultural studies, right? People studied television programs and saw how people kind of got involved in the television programs, did their, did their own readings of television programs that were kind of like forms of national allegory and made sense of the world around them through television and stuff like that. Meantime, behind the scenes, I don't have time to go into this completely, but uh, something rather extraordinary was happening. We, those of us who had participated in the formation of cultural studies, thought of it, I think, almost universally, perhaps not totally universally, as a continuation of the, in the academy of the political radicalism, and in human sciences of the political radicalism of the 60s. And we were bringing into the academy, again, a kind of violent, popular, the violence of popular subjectivity, uh, popular antagonism to university culture, and using it to, in some way or another, transform uh, university uh, culture, create new possibilities of teaching, writing, so forth and so on, in university culture. Radical. But capitalism is moving into a new stage in the A70s, 80s, too, uh, the stage of neoliberal global capitalism. And what we become aware of, uh, in a sense, is that more than being antagonist of this new stage of capitalism, uh, cultural studies is itself tied up with uh, the new forms of capitalism because it's suggesting a more neoliberal market-based way of thinking about how people operate. Right? Where we thought we were talking about how the working class and the popular sectors participate and use popular culture to generate consciousness. Uh, a neoliberal might say, uh, ah, well, that's right, who, who cares about Shakespeare? Uh, you like Shakespeare? That, that's fine. You like whatever the latest junk TV show is, telenovela or something like that. That's fine, too. Uh, you know, the neoliberal principle is that there is no hierarchy of taste and value that's presumed in advance, right? Everybody, everybody is their own owner of their own selves, and they come into the market and make decisions about what they will find advantageous to themselves and or what they find disadvantageous to them, make rational, informed decisions. So you prefer pornography to Shakespeare? Uh, fine, no problem, we have no problem with that. Uh, from a neoliberal point of view, right? What's the principle of authority and hegemony is not some kind of cultural code, uh, but the principle of the, the market and free, the free market. 
So that has an immediate uh, devastating and continuingly devastating consequence on the humanities because before it was presumed that the humanities were the place where the value system uh, and authority system of advanced capitalist societies resided, and especially the system that w is very closely connected with the idea of the nation, right? The humanities, and especially the literary humanities, are structured around the idea of a na the history of a national literature. I, I studied to be, when I was younger, a Hispanist, right? So what I had to learn was the history of Spanish literature from early medieval times and early expressions in dialects that would later on become Romance languages to whatever the latest, Almodovar or whatever the latest thing was. And that somehow fit with the history of the nation, right? The history of the literature was the history of the nation in some sense or another. That starts to go, right? Literature departments start to collapse, are, are still in a kind of free fall. I don't think they're going to go to zero, but certainly 30% maybe, 40% yeah. in the United States, anyway, reduction in the size of literature departments in the humanities. Uh, in part because neoliberalism also implies a transcendence of the nation state as the cultural framework in which in which you have to operate. And then computers and informatics and all that kind of Okay, so to make a long story short, cultural studies suddenly discovers, sitting around, you know, raising the red flag, and that we're actually part of this process. That we've, by the kind of critique that we made of literature, uh, uh, and the literary humanities, uh, a, a sort of self-critique, an auto-critique, an auto-critique that emerged from a, a, a sense of translating radicalism into the academy. We unwittingly, kind of like the rebels uh, in, uh, what's that movie where everybody is, thinks they're living real lives, but actually they're bodies are being sucked. Matrix? Hmm? Matrix? Matrix. Matrix. The Matrix, is that what you're talking about? The Matrix, yeah. So in the Matrix, there's, a, I guess, the Matrix 2, there are these rebels and they're rebelling against the system, but after a while they discover that they're actually part of the system, right? The system has created a kind of rebellion, you know, that is, is itself. Part of the well, that's a little bit what we discovered in cultural studies. Now, one of the consequences of that, and we'll have to leave the, the deep in this, is that um, in the United States, anyway, subaltern studies emerges at the edge of cultural studies uh, as a kind of fold, if you want. Here's cultural studies, and then right at the edge, we're going to put in this little fold that we call subaltern studies, which has a specifically post-colonial dimension to it and uh, Gramscian dimension to it. But it's secondary, right? Uh, cultural studies is the main thing and subaltern studies is the secondary thing. Uh, uh, it seems then uh, that as cultural studies begins to lose what we assume to be, it's uh, both epistemological and political radicalism, uh, that some of the energy of that uh, 
uh, is transferred to uh, a subaltern study. Uh, and subaltern studies there becomes, therefore, I'm speaking very personally here, uh, what happens in my intellectual trajectory. Because I was very heavily involved in building cultural studies, right, in the 19, particularly in the 1980s. <coughs> Uh, but in the 1990s, I switched completely from, sub, from cultural studies to subaltern studies on the basis of what I took to be the, this recognition of the complicity of cultural studies in the justification of a superstructure of a, of a global capitalism. Cultural studies was a form of the humanities that seemed to fit better with the logic of global capitalism than the traditional a literary and philosophical uh, humanities. So subaltern studies, instead of being a, a, a fold in cultural studies, becomes for me more of a, uh, and for other people of my gen generation and situation, a way of thinking beyond cultural studies uh, by posing as the fundamental question, we can come back to this point after the break, uh, of uh, uh, these exercises in theory and interpretation that we do, uh, the question of equality. Subaltern studies, obviously, the, the word itself suggests, right, that subaltern means unequal, right, uh, of inferior status. Is, uh, from the old military use. The subaltern was the guy who shined the shoes of the officer, right? you know, inferior status. Right? So the question of equality then becomes the, the, the central theoretical uh, question. Let's stop there because we've gone a long way and uh, you deserve some comments. Uh, but I just want to take a, a, a little slice to uh, to speak about subaltern studies because I think that got a little slighted in the, uh, the presentation I made. It, it, and to introduce that by saying that I think subaltern studies also hits a kind of a wall, uh, which we were talking a little bit about at lunch. Uh, so. Basically, the idea of subaltern studies, which I already talked about the Gramsci and Warren, uh, but I, I think the fundamental formulation of subaltern studies by the South Asian group is uh, the work of Ranajit Guha, the, uh, probably most of you are familiar with that name, but just in case you're not. And his main book uh, is uh, called Elementary Aspects of Peasant Insurgency in Colonial India. Uh, and he has many books, but I think that's certainly his masterpiece. Uh, and he and Gayatri Spivak edited together the collection that kind of made subaltern studies uh, visible uh, in uh, the uh, Humanities and Social Sciences Academy in the United States and Great Britain, 
uh, e called Selected Subaltern Studies, with a famous preface by Edward Zaid, uh, Selected Subaltern Studies. It's interesting to note, as I said in the first half of the class, that the Bolivians at the same time were doing their own anthology uh, uh, of uh, South Asian subaltern studies. So it's a, it's a topic that kind of migrated around and caught people at different uh, places in their intellectual uh, uh, development. I think where it caught us in Latin American studies, those of us who got involved in like John and myself, uh, was with the uh, collapse of the uh, Nicaraguan Revolution. You, you remember the Sandinistas had this interesting, exciting, new kind of thing in the 80s, uh, but then under a lot of pressure, from economic pressure mainly from the United States, the revolution kind of collapses in on itself, and they agree to accept elections uh, in 1990, thinking that they still have uh, popular will behind them that they'll win the elections, but they lose the elections to a right-wing uh, party, and that's sort of the end. So several of us involved in subaltern studies have been more or less directly involved with the Nicaraguan Revolution, particularly myself and a woman called Ileana Rodriguez, who was sort of the mom and pop of the uh, Latin American subaltern studies group. And she had worked for the Ministry of Culture uh, the, during the revolution in Nicaragua. Uh, and um, appears, by the way, as a figure in Salman Rushdie's memoir of visiting Nicaragua. I forget what it's called. There's something, Ileana Rodriguez. Uh, what's the name of it? Is it the Jaguar the Tiger smile or, or something? something? The Jaguar Smile. The Jaguar, the Jaguar Smile, smile. thank you. Yeah, that sounds right. The Jaguars so the question then that's posed by the, that, the collapse of the uh, Sandinista experiment, together in general with the collapse of the left, uh, the post-colonial left, if we want to call it that way, the cancellation of the Chinese Revolution with the deal that Nixon and Kissinger operate, uh, is what happened to the left. Why has the left been unable, or why was it unable to move uh, forward instead of getting kicked backwards? Uh, this is 1990, 1992, right? And a big question in Latin America. So we, all of a sudden, people, start, I knew subaltern studies through Gayatri Spivak, who was a colleague at the time and had brought to Pittsburgh several of the main figures, uh, the younger figures, not Guha in the subaltern studies group, like uh, Debesh Chakravarti. They would come to Pittsburgh every now and then. And uh, a lot of us that were in Latin American studies just felt an affinity. Don't know why, didn't know much about India, you know, passage to India, saw the movie, you know, that's about it. Uh, but it seemed the way they were talking about Indian history and the role of different social groups in Indian history, the limits of the traditional Marxist left version of British historiography of colonial India uh, fit in a lot of ways with issues in Latin America. Uh, many of our Latin American colleagues, and still do, said, no way, 
I mean, that's India. They just became independent in 1945. We've been independent since 1825. That's no, no way. That's Oriental <coughs> to, to, to impose on Latin America the same kind of model. You know. But we thought it fit. We thought there was a coincidence. It was not only epistemological. In other words, they were facing some of the same issues that Latin American cultural theory and historiography had faced. Peasants, for example. Uh, uh, but uh, there was a there was a kind of coincidence in uh, in theory too. Uh, so, what was the basic idea of subaltern studies? Well, the basic idea of subaltern the subaltern is defined famously by Kuka in his introduction to selected subaltern studies. Uh, I think this is all you need, really, uh, and saves you from having to read a lot of Spivak. Uh, uh, Although Spivak would say this is precisely the problem, but uh, let's see if I can find this. This is again from the uh, introduction or preface that Spivak has. It's a very short thing to selected subaltern studies. Uh, the, wor the word subaltern, Spivak says, I'm quoting here, is a name for the general attribute of subordination, whether this is expressed in terms of class, caste, age, gender, and office. Or in any other way, just to end the quote. That's the subaltern. And uh, at general attribute of subordination, where whether this is expressed in terms of class, caste, age, gender, and office, or in any any other way. Uh, the political logic of subalternity uh, that Guha is trying to. Uh, bring forward recalls a little bit the discussion we were having uh, yesterday about uh, uh, simple negation as opposed to dialectical negation. And simple negation might be expressed in that, in the biblical injunction uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, for those of you who are Christian, uh, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, because they shall inherit the kingdom of, of heaven. Why the poor in spirit? Why not the rich in spirit? Nietzsche would, that's a Nietzschean question. You know, what's this poor in spirit crap? Why not the, the rich in spirit should be the ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven? Because they're more illuminated. Or, no. Jesus says, blessed be the poor in spirit, which I take to be as meaning the subaltern, right? That's what the subaltern person is, poor in spirit. Maybe they even have some money, but they're poor in spirit. So this is the quote that, uh, uh, it's a text from uh, Sanskrit scriptures that uh, Guha puts in the front of uh, elementary aspects of peasant insurgency. And it's a part of a dialogue between Buddha and a disciple called uh, Asalayana. Uh, and Buddha speaks to Asalayana. What do you think about this, Asalayana? Have you heard that in Yona and Camboya, 
and other neighboring Yanapandas, Yanapandas, I suppose, are regions or territories or areas. Uh, there are only two Varnas. Varnas is Sanskrit for class or caste, right? The master and the slave. And then having been a master, one becomes a slave, and having been a slave, one becomes a master. Okay? That's the, uh, the key idea. And that idea founds... Uh, uh, the principle for Guha that we were talking about yesterday of negation is the essential aspect, constitutive aspect of uh, uh, peasant rebellion in the 19th century. Just going to turn the social order upside down. Uh, uh, those who were masters will now be slaves and those who were slaves will now be uh, masters. Guha is a Marxist. Guha was a functionary of one of the Indian Communist Party uh, for many years, of the Comintern. I think he worked actually for the Comintern for a while. Uh, but his view of history has this more Manichaean, if you want to put it kind of way, uh, thing, or at least he's trying to capture the way that Manichaeism works at a certain level of uh, uh, subaltern culture. This has to do also with the way in which history is uh, conceived uh, because <coughs> modern history, I hope I'm not offending anybody who's a historian here, but to some extent, this has changed a lot in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, modern history has become something like the bio even Marxist modern history, the biography of the nation, the biography of the nation state. We're going to tell you the different stages that Spain or England goes through to become the modern nation state is. In this stage, there was a these two classes were prominent in the deal they made with each other, the landowning aristocracy with the rising bourgeoisie. Jane Austen da, 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 uh, produces, uh, you know, modern uh, England. Uh, it's a biography of the nation state, right? Uh, so Guha is opposed to that idea of the biography of the nation-state because he feels that in some kind of way the modern nation-state, the post-colonial nation-state, India, uh, represents, as Gramsci felt about Italy, a failure of the nation to come into being fully. It's, these are partial, deformed uh, post-colonial states. Uh, uh, and somehow or another we have to... Uh, push beyond. Not necessarily the idea of the nation itself, that's a different issue that we can talk about, but beyond that idea of a history that's always talking about the, um, the stages that we pass through to get to modernity, the modern nation-state, right? Uh, uh, Guha rather likes to think of history in and, and the structure of the book peasant insurgency is this way. It's not a diachronic structure. It's not, okay, this peasant rebellion begins in 1862 and it goes through these different phases and is defeated by the English or in 1868, the Sepoy Rebellion or something like that. Right? No, he says, I don't want to give you narratives of peasant rebellions because those narratives will always involve to some extent the point of view of the colonizer or the oppressor rather than the point of view of the peasant rebel. 
the, the, the colonizer, uh, the language of the colonizer, what Guha calls the prose of counterinsurgency, uh, will always involve a sense of history in which the, the colonial rebellion is registered, but registered only as a moment that's overcome in a larger process of colonial modernization, and, uh, and then eventually in the, in the rhetoric of nationalism, by the rhetoric of the nationalist formation of an a integral uh, uh, post-colonial post state. So that way of telling the story of the rebellion, which is diachronic, and which is tied to the history, what I'm calling the history of the nation as a biography of the nation, uh, is in itself, Gukov feels, reactionary, because it cancels the point of view, the vision of the peasant rebel himself or herself, right? Their interests and aims in making the rebellion are not expressed. It's rather that the rebellion seems uh, like a kind of uh, unfortunate interruption of a narrative that otherwise would have gone forward uh, in, in a better kind of way. So instead of lamenting the unfortunate interruption, Guha's decision is to study precisely the structural matrix of the interruption. You remember that one of the key elements involved in Saussure's linguistics and in the notion of linguistic structure in the first place was to move from a diachronic sense of linguistics, in which linguistics was basically tracing the evolution of languages from one stage to another, how we get to modern Spanish from Latin, for example. Well, we have all these complicated graphs that show how this phoneme mutates and stuff like that. And so sort of said, well, that's interesting, that's an interesting question, but I'm going to do synchronic linguistics, in which the dimension of time disappears. Many Marxists freaked out about that, right? They said, oh, synchronic history, where was history? Uh, but I think Saussure had a point. Saussure wanted to say, well, what at any given moment, what, is, what are the set of rules or laws in place? It's true they're going to change, but at this moment that allow you to say correctly or to use correctly certain words for certain things or certain phrases for certain states. Uh, and, and that's where the notion of structure appears. The notion of structure doesn't appear in Diagrammic as, as that which constructs the world through language, only through a synchronic analysis. So, in a sense, Guha and subaltern studies people are making something similar to what Saussure does, uh, and under the influence of reading structuralism uh, with uh, Indian social history. We're going to study the synchronic moment of this or that peasant rebellion or this or that peasant community and see what that's in. And what that will involve among other things, is a notion that history is open at any moment. Instead of history sort of being this sort of what Walter Benjamin liked to call empty homogenous space, right, just sort of moving forward in time, right, that, it, that there are these moments of uh, interruption or where a multiple set of possibilities open up and history could go uh, in many different directions uh, at that moment, uh, depending on the, on how the balance of 
uh, forces uh, works out. So that's the uh, subalternist idea of history, and then tied to that is a kind of, and there I'll stop, uh, a, a kind of um, persistent obsession with inequality, uh, the experience of inequality and the possibility of overcoming the experience of inequality uh, as a fundamental principle of uh, uh, criticism and thinking. So subaltern studies begins as a kind of marginal exercise both in uh, British uh, Orientalism. I think it's it started out marginally and it's been re-marginalized. Uh, I'll bet very few people in your school of African and Oriental studies will declare themselves subalterns. Why? Because there was a huge counterattack against subalternism, mainly led by Orthodox Marxists. Uh, who issued one after another attack on subalternism, essentially as a form of accusing it of being a form of his historiographic orientalism. Uh, right. Well, subaltern, peasants, we don't want that. Uh, I just note that because I think in the present academic landscape, and John can correct me about this, uh, uh, subalternism has disappeared, uh, almost completely disappeared. Uh, as a, maybe Spivak continues to function, but apart, mostly these people. But at one moment it was a big thing, a hot commodity, right, in the late 90s. So hot that we all went to this big conference at Duke where there were all these big people, uh, like Lau and Guha himself, and uh, the Bashak Arbardi and uh, us, and, uh, and the, 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 the dean of humanities at Duke said in a famous uh, expression, subaltern studies will be the model for humanities at Duke. Subaltern studies will be the model for humanities. That was our high moment and our end moment because <laughs> obviously if Duke could, which is one of the most elite universities in the United States, right? Uh, maybe in the top ten, Harvard, Duke, you know, Stanford. Uh, maybe not as high as Harvard and Stanford, but the next five, right? Uh, if they could say hum subaltern studies would be the amount of something is wrong, you know, some, some, the idea of subaltern studies, which was meant to have a radicalizing uh, force, and which envisioned itself as a kind of terrorist operation within academic uh, 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 structures to sort of break, blow things up a little bit. Uh, uh, then, but that's, you know, the academy works by incorporation as well as by uh, uh, dismissal. Anyway, that's a brief history of the what I take to be the basic point in subaltern studies and of uh, how the movement sort of rose and fell. Uh, so subaltern studies, like cultural studies, came to a bad end. And the question in both cases is uh, why what started out with such promise came to a bad end and what we can do today to sort of revive or renovate some of the promise that was involved uh, in, in those. Okay, I'll open for... Yeah. Do you think 
Um, I was thinking about the last point you were making, so um, I'm not going to try and take on all of what you've said because it's been fascinating. Could you speak up a little? So, I, have yes. I was a just thinking hearing. in terms of the last thing you were talking about, the demise of subaltern studies, and also the definition of subaltern as being in numerous categories. And I was wondering if you think what one of the things that's happened in the last sort of 15 years has been the rise of gender studies in particular in relation to sort of the deconstruction of gender and gender discourses and the rise of say trans people as a site of revolutionary or radical um, attack on capitalism and the state and whether perhaps to some extent gender in that sense has eclipsed Subaltern as a place where young people are going to as a source of kind of radical politics. Yeah I think that's that's true. Um, I mean, I think some of the force of what was involved in both cultural studies and I, I, I like to think in terms, maybe it's a little too flip, flippant uh, to, to say studies. What theory gave rise to was the phenomenon of studies and studies is gender, queer, uh, subaltern, post-colonial women's, uh, uh, Africana, Etc. Uh, and there must be a, then an underlying force in what we call studies, uh, cultural, uh, that is similar, that they share, uh, and that could be in some sense or another. And I would say that force is inequality, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the experience of inequality, not just as an economic or income kind of sense, in the Piketty sense of inequality, but in, the, in a cultural and psychological sense. That's why I've tried to make your uh, Fanon's uh, theory of violence a sort of central component rather than uh, a theory. Theory involves, works through violence. It's not just a kind of passive, tranquil space of which violence is somehow the opposite. Uh, so yeah, gender seems to have picked up a lot of the force uh, that before we would have placed in subalternity, but uh, and evolved similar dynamics of uh, uh, dispossession and resentment. Uh, I've tried to make a case here for resentment, right? Uh, I mean, I could say a lot of my argument in all of these sessions is a, uh, a, uh, a uh, argument for resentment. Uh, whereas most theory people with a strong Nietzschean component in theory people, Butler for example, uh, uh, are, uh, hate resentment. And they see resentment as the, the key element in uh, identity politics. So I, this is a danger then. I don't, don't know what kind of queer or transgender one is talking about, but there's a certain sort of Nietzschean, Deleuzean uh, elaboration of queer transgender in which it's, the, I'll, I'm going to talk more about this in my last session, but just to anticipate that, it's a, it's kind of a celebration of becoming, right, of the Spinoza's canadas here, sort of, becoming.
becoming, flowing out into new forms of being, uh, courageous and innovative new forms of being. Well, that kind of leaves resentment behind, right? Because resentful people are narrow and constricted and reactive rather than proactive. And, uh, the slave mentality in, in Nietzsche's famous characterization of Christianity. Uh, you'll notice that Christianity has popped up a few times in my, you know, I made biblical references. And I was brought up as an Anglican, uh, like maybe a lot of you, but uh, I gave it up completely by the time I was 16, but now it sort of pops up every now and then. Slave mentality, subaltern. Yeah. I wanted to ask something related. You want to ask me about that? that. Because, uh, well, we know that in, in, this, in the 60s, uh, in Latin America, there was this movement uh, of Teología uh, la Liberación. Liberation theology. Related also with revolutionary movements, but to what extent was this uh, really a relationship, and how influential was the Christian Christian beliefs in general for for this uh, for the subaltern movements? Subaltern people are all Marxist, right? I mean, the, the word that maybe has occurred here only in a negative way, because I've sometimes been throwing darts at what I call orthodox Marxism. Well, I'm a Marxist. I consider myself a Marxist. Uh, maybe a post-Marxist, but that's sort of like asking the question, well, what kind of Marxist are you? Are you a Trotskyist? Oh, I'm a post-Marxist. That's the kind of Marxist I might espouse. The post kind of Marxist. But a Marxist. Uh, Post-Marxist. Marxist. So I think that's important. Marxism is part of this story. Uh, and still is part of this I mean, we're talking about how we would renovate or bring to bear what was an initial impulse in Marxism to comprehend uh, and to act in the world today and to act in our fields and disciplines. Liberation theology was uh, th this idea, I think a very productive idea, I certainly supported it, that the Catholic Church, if it was going to prosper, uh, needed to be on the side of the poor. Uh, because the poor was the majority of the population in those countries where the Catholic Church had Philippines, Latin America, countries in Africa had some possibility of surviving. So, in one way, it was just a strategic calculation. You know, if, if the Catholic Church is going to survive and prosper, who does it? If it sides too much with the elites, people are going to abandon it in favor of Protestant fundamentalism and stuff like that. They are abandoning it. In a lot of places, in favor of Protestant fundamentalism, uh, so we will take the side of the poor, and that seemed fine to us. And so much so, well, the the, the formula, right, uh, by the the, the famous uh, <coughs> liberation theology theologian uh, uh, Gutierrez, I think, Peruvian guy. Uh, is that liberation theology is a preferential option for the poor. That what you do in liberation theology is make a preferential option for the poor. And that was the way I defined subaltern studies. Subaltern studies, like liberation theology, is a prefer in academic terms a preferential option 
for the you side with the poor. Uh, you tried anyway. Not, not that you're going to join, because that's part of the whole problem, right? That the world of the poor and the world of ourselves just precisely straddles the dominance of all. But you side with the poor. Or, or you try to, to side with the poor. But I don't think, at least I haven't grasped this, that the spiritual dimension of liberation theology uh, the, the idea that it involves in some sense or another uh, spirituality and religion and belief I, I think we're more open to that than, because we see that as part of the culture of the subaltern Gramsci was trying to come to terms with the fact with the, fa with the fact of uh, Catholicism as a dominant uh, cultural form in southern Italy right and uh, uh, but I'm, I'm not religious, right? And usually when I get close to religion, I feel some un uncomfortableness. Even though I often work with religious people and I admire their commitment, their bravery, their, their, the strength of their beliefs, I think religious spaces are a little creepy. <laughs> to put it in some kind of way, yeah. Yeah. Which approach to subjectivity that were active in alternate studies uh, do you think were like left behind in thinking about this new subject that is fluid, that is in becomings? And I understand this is the subject of new materialist theory as well. And you were talking about resentment, and that makes me think that resentment was specifically linked also to identity politics and the idea of certain stability in identity, no? Because resentment is also about developing an identity that is based in certain injury, in certain exactly. shared pain, no? Yes, uh, there's a famous book by Wendy Brown, which is called States of Injury, the play on words on states is intentional both an affect and the formal state, the government, you know, the, the state of injury. It's a very powerfully argued book, uh, an attack on identity politics uh, uh, from a Nietzschean, left Nietzschean kind of uh, uh, point of view, very much uh, tied up with the notion of kind of trying to break through the limitations of gender formations. Uh, uh, find new forms of identity. Performance is often mentioned. New materialism is a word I've just come into contact with, so you, maybe you can tell us more about it. But my reservation about all of this uh, is that I find there's a danger in the critique of resentment and the critique of identity politics. Not that I don't understand the limitations of identity politics. Uh, but uh, there's a danger there of what I, I would call re-subalternizing the subalternity of, because you're saying, oh, you people aren't smart enough or brave enough or uh, Spinozian enough or whatever to embrace this policy of personal politics or of becoming more than you are breaking out of the 
limitations of the nation, the limitations of the family, the limitations of the race, the limitations of the gender, uh, you should be capable of doing that. that that's a revolutionary uh, impulse. And since you don't aren't capable of doing that, you're locked into often the politics of an imagined injury, right? Uh, like sometimes happens in psychoanalysis where there's the false memory syndrome, right? They think, oh, you know, my, uh, my father beat me up, you know, or assaulted me when I was five, and it turns out, no, he didn't, but that's stuck in your mind in some kind of way and forms part of your identity. So the critique of identity politics often involves that. And then, you, so you're always stuck on the injury. You can never, it's like, you never completed the, the cathexis, right, from uh, uh, melancholy to mourning, right? You're always in a situation of melancholy. And since you're tied to the dead body, according to this argument, uh, uh, you yourself begin to rot and decay, right? And therefore, and that's resentment, right? That's essentially the argument. But it seems to me that that puts a lot of pressure on people by saying that sort of their politics are not good enough. So Maybe like in mourning, it's a necessary process. You cannot mourn completely someone if you don't identify with that person at some point. I mean, you need identity and then you can become another thing. But it's like, it could be part of a process. Like, we could think that it's unthinkable to reach the Deleuzean subject before having identity politics before. Because when there is localized oppression, you, of course, need to respond with a language that is coded in the same code that the oppression was. Yes and no. Because it, it might be possible uh, and this would be my alternative to the Deleuzean uh, project, uh, to think that a politics of the poor is possible and that it won't be just the same as <coughs> the conventional politics, right? And I saw some elements of that, limited, very limited, in uh, Brazil and Bolivia and some of the other Latin American uh, e experiments in, in which social movements dynamic social movements, the movement of the landless in Bolivia, indi indigenous formations in uh, Ecuador and uh, in Bolivia, uh, construct new forms of uh, politics from subaltern <coughs> without canceling out, uh, the, canceling themselves out culturally. Uh, uh, but they're new. Yeah. For example, perhaps the Zapatista within Mexico. Yeah, the Zapatistas, yeah. Well, the Zapatistas was sort of our team for a while, kind of like, I see Corbin as a fan of Armory, is that the team, or the soccer team in London? Armory, something? Oh, it's red and... Arsenal. Arsenal. Arsenal, yeah. Close enough. Hey, yeah. Uh, the Zapatistas were our arsenal. Uh, wore the... But I think that's kind of hit a skid, right? Uh, so here's the critique I would make of the Zapatistas. The Zapatistas say, uh, 
and they are very much in a, in a Deleuzean, Hart and Negri kind of mode. They say, we renounce the state, kind of like early Christians renounced the state and that be under Caesar and give unto God, pertains to God. So they, uh, and they say, our, our effectiveness will be in civil society. We're going to work at the level of civil society to transform people's um, <coughs> thinking, and to transform the institutions of civil society in a more democratic, egalitarian, multicultural, communistic uh, kind of way. Uh, and then comes, uh, but we, we aren't bidding for state power. Uh, state power in itself would involve a uh, uh, too much of a collusion with uh, uh, something that's corrupt and limited. The state itself is a, an institution created by class violence and colonial violence in, in Latin America. So we're going to transform the state from the outside, kind of like the old Maoist idea of the encircling the cities, right? Instead of the revolution coming out from the cities, the peasant armies would encircle the cities. Uh, but then there comes the elections in 19, in 2005, right? uh, Mexican uh, presidential elections, and there's a candidate of the moderate left, uh, the PRD, Partido Revolucionario Democrático, running against a candidate of the right. <coughs> Pretty even, but the candidate of the left seems to be favored because there's a sort of tide of leftism in Latin America generally, and in Mexico, people kind of looking for new. And what are the Zapatistas do? They say, we are going to take sides. We have a different kind of campaign, they talked in those terms. Uh, and uh, it, it's not that they were against the left-wing party, but they didn't throw the considerable cultural prestige and ethical and political prestige they have in Mexico in favor of the electoral left uh, party. And as a result, the, ethical, the, the, the left party, I think as a result, uh, loses. And a series of right-wing governments uh, follow in Mexico, right-wing governments that make as their one of their priorities, uh, the war on drugs, which leads to, I think by now, something like 60 or 70,000 people killed, right? Uh, uh, so it seems to me that the Zapatistas, which began in such a promising way by failing to uh, deal with the problem of the state uh, and the forces that are uh, embedded in the state, uh, including uh, the monopoly on violence, the state actually, <laughs> the violence the state would like to exercise, uh, missed the boat. And, and now constitutes something like those 19th century utopias in the United States, you know, where Robert Owen or somebody like that would come and build a utopian community. And it would last for a generation or two, and then eventually. Peter away. There were a lot of them all over the time. So the Zapatismo in Chiapas, or the region, the part of Chiapas they control, seems to me like that. It still radiates a certain kind of uh, positive uh, energy, uh, but it, 
I don't think it's shown that it can be an, an alternative, you know. Uh, and the issue there, we could come back to talk about this more, and John has thoughts on this too, has, has to do, I think, with the question of the state. And wh why is it that theory, people, and uh, stop short of the state? Everything is great, but once you get to the state, it's like, oh, no, 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 we don't want to have anything to do with the state. Uh, if you're a genuine Spinozian, the state isn't something outside of matter or outside of reality. It's just one aspect of matter. So why not flow into the state? Right? Yeah. Flow, take it over, uh, try to take it over. That seemed to me the impetus in the that I liked in the... Latin America New Left, that they didn't stop at the boundaries of the state, uh, but tried to think of what it would mean to occupy the state, and what were the limits of that. You can't do everything simply by occupying the state, but also what what kind of things might be possible by occupying the state that, that you're prohibited from even thinking about if you don't occupy the state. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in uh, in the politics of who speaks on behalf of the subaltern within academia. And I was just wondering if you could tell us something about, uh, I suppose, the relationship between uh, scholars in Latin America and scholars in the USA, for example, working you know, in this area of um, subaltern studies. Do you, do you sense any tension between them, or do they just come together as a common block of uh, academics working in the system? No, of course not. Uh, Latin American historians in, in general hated subaltern studies. Uh, and uh, uh, it's an American thing with some British guys from India, you know, and what's that got to do with us <laughs> in Latin America? Amazing. Nothing. Thanks. Nothing at all. Uh, it's bad. It's Orientalism. I, one of my colleagues, Pavel Morania, was a strong art, art. But I think some of the younger historians in Latin America picked up on subaltern studies. And certainly, the, we could say that's the big exception in Latin America, the people who really picked up on subaltern studies and used it to transform their way of thinking about politics and Marxism were the Bolivians. The group called Comuna, the group of historians and thinkers, including García Linera, the vice president, they and they seem to have been still successful in spite of the general downfall of. Uh, it seems like they're running a fairly successful government. The economy is okay. It's not like Venezuela. It's, it's a solid economy. Why is it a solid economy? Because it said that. The president, I forget his name right now, Evo Morales, being an, uh, an Indian petty bourgeois kind of semi-entrepreneur and, and thinking Indian ways of thinking about economics didn't make the same kind of uh, crazy populist mistakes that uh, Chavez made, was much more sensible about etc. Right? So, uh, but there was a tension uh, and I think that tension operated in a similar way as it operated in the in the British and uh, U.S. Academy uh, to head off subaltern studies. To, 
Okay, here comes subaltern studies. Here's the, the, the boom. It hits it, moves it a little bit, but then it's like something you a log you hit with a boat, and then the boat keeps going forward, and the log gets pushed over to the side. That seems to have been the fate of subaltern studies, both in Latin America, and it, certainly in India. Right, where subaltern studies is probably uh, minus zero now, uh, and in in U.S. academy, I have a. A nephew who's an Indian historian, right? Uh, a historian of Muslim India. Uh, and uh, that's subaltern studies and all that is. Yesterday's, <laughs> yesterday's language. There was quite a, a lot of one moment uh, with historians who were studying uh, banditry. Uh, it's a lot of, uh, you know, that's where a lot of it was picked up, wasn't it? Uh, quite kind of original. There was a big debate around around the studies of uh, banditry. So you would get, you know, uh, historians here in the States and some in Latin America using those terms to talk about uh, banditry because, in a way, one of the things that happened was, I think, Guha or Chakrabarti or these people, of course, attacked Hobsbawm. Well, go high. Go ahead uh, at the go beginning ahead, yeah. of that book. Exactly. That's it starts with an attack on Hobbes' Hobbes book about bandits. Uh, you know, the British Marxist historian's account of banditry and so on. And so, because it involved at that point, coming back to your question, a kind of uh, disqualification of the political agency of, let's say, banditry and banditry-inflected insurgency in politics. So they were discounted as proper, the proper political agency or subjects in that sense. So one of the things that Guhan and etc. are doing is to, treat, is to try and rethink political subjectivity uh, anew, which wouldn't discount all of these people, these peasants and <laughs> bandits. And of course, peasantry is a milieu for a lot of these. Uh, bandit uh, kind of activities and lots of them a bit like you know you can think of Pancho Villa you know so you have this kind of banditry politics <laughs> you, you know um, hybrid so to speak so narco would be the two well, narco <laughs> now but narco yeah, yeah. <laughs> what has happened in the last two decades what connections would you like to establish between theoretical intellectual thinking and political events? We seem to stop the story in the late 90s. So what has happened in the last two decades? Well, as we know, and, and, and that was going to be, and I don't, I certainly don't want to disqualify any of the new things people are doing uh, around questions of gender, for example, queer studies. Uh, what I think I, I could say about post-colonialism and, and cultural studies and subaltern studies, that, that kind of triad, if you want to put it that way, that lasts up to the end of the 90s, is that it, in a kind of postmodern way, and they nevertheless preserve the question of the to, to, what traditional Marxist or Hegelians would call the totality, right? In other words, they ask questions about what were the fundamental structures, economic or otherwise, that held certain kinds of social formations and histories, uh, nations together. 
They didn't do this in the Marxist sense of the totality, that the totality hinges on, you know, the mode of production and everything and sort of... But nevertheless, they asked questions about the totality. If you really pursued a post-colonial perspective to its end, you would... It's a kind of... In academic terms, it would be like the point of Archimedes, right? That's the point where the Archimedes says if you put the lever at that point, you can move the world, right? Because the, the mathematical relationship between... It's an Archimedean point. So post-colonial studies have placed some altered studies. You can move the world. You can transform the world from that point. Uh, and that seems to be gone now in the new forms of uh, uh, post-colonial Deleuzean. I suppose, but I, I don't want to waste uh, your time because I, I'm going to talk more about this on Monday, but I suppose you could say that the very Deleuzean, to my way of thinking, project of Hardin Negri and all the progeny in empire, all the two, two, in the year two, notice subaltern studies and post-colonial studies, boom, empire, whoop, uh, so empire would be the new, and and stuff like that, uh, kind of anarcho-Marxist, post-Marxist, uh, highly gender revolutionary, uh, science fictional in a lot of ways. Uh, I always think of Hardenegri as being a kind of science fiction. Uh, you have in London a, a novelist uh, who's very much I think, part of this new ethos, who's China or China Mieville, right? Who writes science fiction novels about a kind of apocalyptic future London, you know, and new tribes of uh, people emerging. But I don't see in in this stuff. Uh, uh, that Archimedean point, uh, uh, which was connected to the politics of theory in the sense that we thought by doing a certain kind of theoretical work and a certain kind of criticism related to that theoretical work, we were going to change the world, right? You know, recalling the famous saying of Marx, it's not enough to interpret the world, you have to change the world, you know, from the thesis on Feuerbach. Uh, it seemed that we were in possession of something via theory, Marxism, psychoanalysis, feminism, post-colonial work, uh, that uh, was a point from which to change, anti-racist uh, phenomenon, a point to change the world. And I don't see that now. I don't see any equivalent. Uh, but that's a prejudice of my generation. It may have to do with the same reason I don't understand or like hip-hop. You could say to me, you should like hip-hop, John, because hip-hop, a lot's happening in hip-hop. That's where the force of cultural contestation is. But what can I do? Um, my question sort of follows on from what you've I'm been sorry. saying. That should be the very last question. I'm sorry to cut off. But it's past five, so can you ask a question? Do you want me to accumulate a couple of questions and then we're two or three? Yeah, we're already past five. Okay. So, well, just briefly, my question is about the role of the intellectual, um, you know, in, in this narrative that you've been putting together for us. I was struck by the critique 
of intellectuals in Fanon's work, rereading Fanon's work. Um, and I was wondering how you saw that changing, particularly with the changing status and role of universities. Um, yeah, yeah that's a, I think that's a great question, really fundamental question. I think we saw subaltern studies because some of us had been at least tinged by Maoism, and there's a tinge of Maoism in subaltern studies, right, uh, as a form of criticism, self-criticism, right? Uh, that intellectuals needed to be self-critical about themselves and about the assumptions they brought to the world and to, to their work because, in a way, subalternity was something produced by the university system, right? Or at least the university system was, and literature and history was complicit in some kind of way in the creation of... So, uh, subaltern studies was in the first place a critique of intellectuals by intellectuals, self-critique, right? With the hopes that, as in criticism, self-criticism, things would improve a little bit, you know, and we could open up to new kinds of things. The question of the university I find very puzzling. I don't really know how to... It, it seems in a bad shape, the university at the moment. Uh, uh, being taken over more and more by business, uh, uh, in, in, in my country, languages are more and more being reduced to appendages to professional careers and uh, business and stuff like that. I suppose that's going to keep on. I think something like that's been happening here. And the university itself seems more and more an adjunct of corporate capitalism rather than a space that was helpful to corporate cap technology, so forth and so on, but independent of it, right? Now it seems to be instrumentalized as a as, as part of globalization. We're talking about creating a campus in uh, Qatar, you know, so Pittsburgh. And I had a piece of paper with me, but I can't find it anymore, but I brought it with you. There's going to be a, a, a conference on cultural studies in Singapore. Next November, you're all invited. That's what I was invited. And there were three. There were three keynote speakers. It's at the Singapore School of the sponsor of technical management or something like that. But it's a conference on cultural studies. And one of the keynote speakers will be I can't remember the woman's name, but a woman. Mainstreaming gender, right? All, all the keynote speakers are women. So Post-feminism is in. Uh, and she will speak on the cultural DNA of success. That's the keynote speech at a conference on cultural studies uh, in Singapore. Uh, so that's, I don't know about the university. I mean, is it a space from which there's some kind of radical contestation is still possible? I hope so. And in a way, it's going to be your task to to push that possibility. But I, it looks like things are getting a lot tighter now than they were 20 years ago. Immaterial capital. Thanks, all. Thank you. Thank you.